Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hello, Giants fans, and welcome to a new edition of the Valentine's Views podcast. If you're watching us on YouTube, please like, share, and subscribe. And if you're listening across the Big Blue View Radio Network, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, today we're going to uh, to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk about one of the Giants Super Bowl winning teams. We're going to talk about the 1986 team, and here to uh, to, to do that with me is longtime NFL columnist Gary Myers, who's recent, who's written a book about that team that will come out on September 12th called Once a Giant. Gary, thank you very, very much for, for hopping on the show. Thanks for having me on, Ed. So, you know, I have not had the opportunity to read this book yet. It's not out yet. Um, but tell me... Tell me what the genesis of this book is, and and it's it's what now almost forty years since this team, since the '86 team won a Super Bowl. What's the what's the reason for writing this book about this team now? Well, my motivation was really to tell the story of what happens to players when they get into their fifties and and get into their sixties, and what the long-term impact uh, of playing football has done to them emotionally, physically, uh, financially, in a lot of cases, good and bad. You know, we've heard so much about CTE over the last decade, but it goes much deeper than that. I mean, all players who have played, you know, lengthy careers and suffer concussions or maybe didn't have any officially diagnosed, but were just banging heads. Certainly, you know, CTE is something they've, considered and, and feared, but it's, it, like I said, it, it's much more than that. It's the emotional effect that playing the game has had and, and the physical effect with knee replacements, shoulder replacements, uh, a lot of mental health issues uh, prevalent from those 86 Giants. So um, this is my sixth book. I, I My first five were not New York related necessarily. And I always wanted to do a, a book uh, that was really about a New York team. You know, I, I grew up here. I'm, I'm from here. I lived most of my life here. And um, I thought, you know, what a, what a perfect way to tell the story of the plight of, re, of the retired players, you know, to go and, and dig deep on the 86 Giants who are right in the age group where, where players, you know, really start to experience a lot of issues, you know, in their late 50s to late 60s. And I, I've known a lot of these guys for many, many years. So I, I kind of had a running start uh, in that I had existing relationships with them. And I, I talked to any, every big name player 
that you can think of on that team. Uh, I sat for a long time with Parcells. Uh, Belichick cooperated with me on this book, which I was very happy about because, as we know with Bill, that he doesn't really cooperate with the media much beyond <laughs> his daily press conferences. No, we never, we never would have figured that out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But he, he loved his time with the Giants, and he loved that team. So he was very happy to answer my questions. And I, I think I put together 300 really compelling pages that tell the story of what these guys are going through now. But so the book wasn't a complete downer, and I didn't want it to be because there are a lot of heartwarming stories in here as well. I go back to 1986, and I talk about how this team became such a strong brotherhood. And how that bond still exists 37 years later. And a lot of them, led by Parcells and Harry Carson, have really, so to speak, rallied the troops when there's a teammate in need. And um, and there's a lot of fun stuff about what went on in the locker room in those days that really brought these, te- these players and coaches close together so that here in, in 2023 – when it's a player that really needs help, they have people to turn to besides their, their family. And uh, so that's really the heartwarming part of the book, which is bounced off by a lot of the heartbreaking things about the players who are in need, uh, stories that people have never heard before about some of the biggest names, not only in Giants history, but in NFL history. It's one of those things, Gary, I know that I don't know if you've had this happen, you know, during your career, you know, covering NFL teams, but, but I get people who every so often they'll say to me, Oh, you get to go in NFL locker rooms and you get to talk to players and you get to talk to Eli Manning. And, you know, in your case, you, you got to interview Lawrence Taylor and, and all of those things. And, and it, you know, it, it becomes a job in a way. I mean, yes, it's, it's, it's a great job, but it becomes a job. And, and one of the things that you learn, I think that fans don't understand is these are just people. They might be people who have bigger incomes than you and I do. They might be people who have more famous names than you and I do, but even throughout their playing careers, I happened to talk to Justin Pugh recently about a lot of this as well. They go home at night and they have families and they have people they know who are in health crises and and they're just in a lot of ways they're just normal people and and i and i think that you know for me i think that's something that a lot of of fans don't really understand is they're they're just people who have the same issues you and i do and and maybe other issues based on the living that they've that they've chosen well yeah i mean absolutely they're they're normal people with the same day-to-day issues that we all have and that's just supplemented by the fact that they played a collision sport where there it was a high speed uh car crash basically every every play and there's repercussions that come about as a result of putting their bodies through that and um you know one one story i'll tell you is that and I, i think you know uh, people in their 50s and 60s can really relate to this is that, you know, Jim Burt was really hesitant to go to a doctor after he finished his playing career. He had back surgery, but other than that, he really hadn't gone for any checkups, which was, we all know is, is really crucial to maintaining good health. And 
you know, Harry Carson found out about this and I have the specific number of years that he had not gone to a doctor in the book. I don't really recall off the top of my head, but it was a significant number of years. And Harry was insistent on Bert going to the doctor. You know, Harry still considers himself captain for life. You know, he was the captain of that team and he, he considers himself captain to this day. So Harry kept pushing and pushing for Bert to go to the doctor. And Bert finally gave in, but said to Harry, I'll only go if you take me. And, and Jim de- denies that the reason he didn't want to go is because he didn't want to find out anything bad, which is, I think, the fear that we all have when we go to the doctor. And he just says, oh, you know, I just didn't get around to it. you know. But when Harry started pushing, he agreed to go. So Harry and his wife took Jim Burt to the doctor. And then they get to the doctor's office and they're sitting in the waiting room. And Jim insisted that Harry come into the examining room <laughs> and sit there while the doctor was um, examining him. Now, there's a disagreement between Je- Harry and Jim when the doctor was performing different uh, tests on him, whether Harry stayed in the room or not. I don't want need to get too graphic here, but um, Jim says, ah, there's no way I would let Harry stay in the room. And Harry said, yeah, I stayed in the room. I just turned my head. I didn't want to watch. Um, <laughs> But regardless, they're both in agreement that um, that Jim went to the doctor because of Harry and has been going to the doctor ever since. So that that's just an example of how Harry still considers it his responsibility to look after his guys. And to me, that's just an amazing story. I, I you know, I've, I've covered the Cowboys for eight years in Dallas in the 1980s, and I've stayed in touch with a lot of those players. And a lot of them still live in Dallas, and they see each other at events. But I don't know that they have a Harry Carson on that team or a Phil Sims, or a coach. I mean, Landry has passed, but um, even an assistant coach that has stayed in touch with their players. And, you know, after Landry, I don't think Jimmy Johnson looks after his players like Parcells does. And people will read in the book, you know, write in the introduction. I hit people over the head with this amazing story about how Parcells, and I'm just going to give you a snippet of this because I want people to read the book, but over the years, Parcells has loaned out a total of $4 million to 20 of his former players who have come to him, I won't say destitute, but certainly in financial, uh, having a financial hardship. And Bill sat down and written checks for about $4 million, which to me, is completely unprecedented um, in sports. I've never heard of anything like that. And I said to Bill, you know, why? Why would you do something like that? Why do you feel obligated? And he explained to me, Ed, that um, he set aside all the money he needs for what hopefully will be another 30 years of his life. He just turned 82. And he's given money to his, his three daughters and to his grandchildren. And then he has a certain amount of money left. And he says, what better way is there to do it than if some of my players who gave so much to me and helped me make a hall, make me a Hall of Fame coach and make me financially secure, it was because of their hard work and, and me driving them and to, to be the best they can be. They gave so much to me. Now that I'm in a position to help, and unfortunately they're in a position that where they need, why shouldn't I be the one to help? And 
you know, people who remember Parcells as this hard-driving coach who had a love-hate relationship with his players, you know, and now to see the transformation where he has become the patriarch of that team. Wellington Marrow was for a long time, but Bill was still coaching other teams at that point. Uh, now that Bill is retired and splitting his time between Florida and Saratoga, players call him on his birthday. They call him on Father's Day. Um, it, it's really an amazing story. And it, it's not just – nobody's just paying lip service to this because when a man sits down and writes checks for $4 million, I don't care how much money you have, that's a lot of money. And he knows when they come to him that it's out of desperation because they're embarrassed to have to go to their coach and say, hey, coach, you know, I, I really need help here. Otherwise, I can't make the mortgage payment or I'm going to lose my house or I can't pay the doctor bills, or, you know, I, I'm having trouble with child support and I'm about to get into real problems. He, he, he's not just giving money to players who don't have a good use for it. You know, he, he makes sure that it's being used for the right reasons. And then he feels, you know, a responsibility. I don't even want to use the word obligation. I think he feels the word, uh, feels a responsibility to really assist his former players, which to me is just, you know, really, really heartwarming. Absolutely. And uh, I don't know if you've seen, uh, I don't know if you've seen coach lately. He was, uh, he was at Giants training camp uh, one heard. day this summer and uh, he looks great. Yeah. He looks great. Although it, it makes me feel old to realize that, that Bill's 82 years old. <laughs> yeah. And me too, because uh, the first time he got mad at me, I was only about 25 <laughs> and we'll that now. Um, oh. But I, I really enjoy my friendship with him now. We, we sparred at every one of his stops, whether it was the Giants, the Patriots, the Jets, the Cowboys. You know, I asked him questions in press conferences and just one on one that he didn't like, you know, because, you know, if I, if I didn't, he didn't answer the question the way I knew that he could the first time, I'd ask it again you know, if he wasn't forthcoming. And so we, we kind of had a, I think he always respected me and certainly I respected him. And um, now that he's not coaching anymore and I'm not in the daily grind of, of covering the league anymore, uh, we've really developed a, a very, very nice relationship. I talk to him all the time. A lot of times I just call him to check up on him and, and see how he's feeling. Uh, talking about his traveling back and forth between Florida and Saratoga when he's making the trip and things like that. And it's just not me, obviously. Mm -hmm. Is this this way? I don't know how many media people he's like this with, but certainly his players look out for him. You know, Bill's divorced now, so he lives on his own, and his players are constantly checking up on him, which is, when you think about it, it's really cool that they mm -hmm. accomplish so much together he helped his players make a lot of money because they won. His players made him help him make a lot of money because they won together. So they owe an awful lot to each other. They might have hated it, not him, but hated the whole routine when they were playing for him because he drew, he always said, you know, if his expectations for players were greater than the players had for themselves, it was a problem. So he pushed them really hard. And they, they hated that. But ask any player to this day, you know, if they appreciate 
their time with Parcells and they would say, yeah. And he's still there for them, which is really interesting. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, Gary, I wanted to ask you, you started covering the NFL in what, 1978, I think it was. Yeah. And, you know, I've been doing so now for maybe the last 15 years. And, and one of the things that's always interesting to me is to talk to guys that did it long before I did. And it's so different because you have, you had the opportunity just because of access and the way things were, you had the opportunity to develop a real friendship with Parcells, yeah. to develop a real relationship with, with a lot of these players. We don't really have that opportunity now because every, everywhere we go, we're sort of handheld by members of the PR staff and oh, I know. we don't, you know, and, and things like that. And I'm just curious just from your own perspective, I mean, it, it's it has nothing to do with the book, but how much has it changed covering the NFL over the over the decades? Yeah, and that's a that's a great issue to talk about. Um, I would say in those days, I wouldn't call it friendships; I'd call them relationships, um, an understanding. Uh, the players had a great understanding of what our jobs were about, the coaches as well, and we had an understanding on how to deal with them. And I would say, you know, now that I'm not doing it anymore, a lot of those relationships have evolved into friendships. Um, and, and that happened with a lot of players as they were retiring. You know, our, our, the relationship changed. But we, there's no question that we got to know the players better in those days, which led to them trusting you and being more forthcoming and providing our readers with much better stories than they're able to write today without a PR guy hanging over your shoulders saying, okay, time's up, got to go. Thanks guys. You know, Mm -hmm. um, locker rooms closed. Um, We were able to arrange interviews on our own. 
get one-on-ones because the media crowd wasn't anything like it is today, you know, with all the, the websites and, and whatnot, you know, probably tripling the number of people that were covering the team, you know, uh, in the late seventies, eighties, even the nineties. Um, I don't know that I'd be able to continue doing it. If, if I was in my thirties now or in my forties and the parameters were the same as they are now, rather than what I experienced back in those years, I, I don't know that I'd want to do it because one of the things that I think I helped separate myself from the group was my ability to develop relationships with players and have them trust me. And as a result, I always felt I got better stories than anybody else. And you, you can't do that if you're just in a group. And it's like a be- the beehive. You know, if you have kids and, and they play soccer when they're four years old, we always call it the beehive effect. They just move, <laughs> they just follow the ball. Nobody plays a position at that point. They just all follow the ball. And, you know, the coaches say that's the beehive effect in, in right. soccer. That's what right. it is in a locker room now. It's probably what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Unless you want to go talk to the backup left guard, you're not going to be able to talk to anybody by yourself. Because first of it- all, and even then you get five, you get like three or four questions and then you get told by PR to move yeah. on. <laughs> and, and, you know? and, yeah. and that's because a lot of it is because the, the players are spending the interview period in the trainer's room or in the lunchroom. And, and so maybe there's six guys in the locker room at a time, maybe 10 and mm-hmm. maybe two or three old guys that you were considering talking to that day, but then so is everybody else. And so you never get any one-on-one time. It's just, to me, and, and maybe if I was just starting out in the business and didn't know any better, mm-hmm. um, I'd be able to handle it. But knowing how it was when I first, for most of my career, um, and how it is today, it just wouldn't be enjoyable um, because I'd just be one of many. Right. And how do you really separate yourself from the pack if you don't get – the time. And you know, and one other thing, I find that pl- the relationship between players and the media has changed because, you know, back, especially when I covered the Cowboys in the 80s and for the Dallas Morning News, the players needed us to get their name out because they wanted to present a really positive image because they weren't making the money they were today. And if they had a positive image, maybe they would get that endorsement deal from the local car dealership to be able to supplement their income. So they wanted to cooperate with the media. Now the players are making so much money that they don't need us anymore. The team doesn't need us anymore. It used to be they wanted the media there to promote their brand. They didn't even call it a brand in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they have, like the Giants, for example, and I get along great with the Giants, but they, they have their own in-house media team, you know, video, uh, for the website, all the stories that are up there. They take care of NFL Network. They take care of their network media partners. And I really believe for the most part, not just the Giants, but all the NFL teams get plenty of, generate their own publicity. They, they'd be just as happy if the day-to-day media didn't exist anymore. <laughs> You're probably but, right about that. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know what? I just want to say one other thing. I, I found that players today, in terms of enjoying the media, I'm talk, I'm not talking about like when you have 20 people around, but I think in a one-on-one interview, players really haven't changed all that much. They still enjoy it. I think they still 
like the conversations where the reporter has good questions and, and they get something out of it themselves. And I think it does prepare them in a lot of ways for what they're going to be dealing with in their life away from football. But because there are such restrictions now with these PR people who consider it their job in a way to limit access rather than facilitating things, it's just become a, a very difficult situation. And I'm not just saying by no means am I singling out the Giants because I have friends who cover teams all over the league and it's pretty much the same all over. Absolutely. And, you know, to circle back to your book, Once mm-hmm. a Giant, which is uh, coming out September 12th, yeah, folks. So uh, to circle back to that, I think a lot of the stories and a lot of the detail and a lot of what you get into probably couldn't have been told without the relationships that you had been able to form with some of these guys over the years. And there is one in particular, and I don't want you to give away the entire book. Sure. But as I as I was reading through some of the the prep material uh, for your book, the uh, Giants fans have this mental picture in their head of Mark Bavaro, mm-hmm. big tough Mark Bavaro carrying San Francisco 49ers defenders down the field, you know, basically being a almost a mute while he was you know while he was playing and hardly ever talking to the media and just being this big, tough, you know, almost this bronze statue of a guy. And, you know, you tell, you tell a story in the book about Bavaro and some of the struggles that he's gone through lately. And, and if you, if you'd mind just, you know, sharing a little bit of that, I, I think, you know, I think people would like to hear it. Yeah. Um, Mark is a fascinating guy. I think he's a really bright guy. And it's funny. He told me a story that um, one of his daughters, uh, his daughter, his couple of sons and a daughter um, was watching an interview that he did in 1986 when, like you mentioned, he was very reluctant. And after she watches, she goes, dad, you didn't know how to talk. (laughs) (laughs) And he just left. It just wasn't the time in his life that he felt he wanted to give a lot of, his, of himself. And I told him, I said, Mark, do you know how much money you could have made? Because back in those days, playing in New York was a big advantage for guys getting endorsement deals, national endorsement deals. It's not so much anymore because just the way the world has changed and the media has changed. I said, you could have made a fortune. You know, play, fans loved you. He's a nice looking guy. He speaks really well. You wouldn't know it from those years. Um, and he goes, I know, I know, you know, but it wasn't me back when I was 25 years old. So anyhow, I go to his house in Boxford, Massachusetts, which isn't far from, I think it's the New Hampshire border. Yeah, either New Hampshire, Maine, whatever. Um, it's about an hour from Boston, I guess. And I spent a long time with him. And I had known, and again, I'm not going to give all this away, but let's just say that his story in there is very current in that he had tremendous struggles with long-term COVID. And there's a picture in the book that's just going to blow people away. Uh, He fainted two nights in a row in his house, a second time on his bathroom floor, face first. And uh, I I would say that 
all say people are going to be just shocked to see what his face looked like. Cause, and he was, I, he had showed me the picture when I was in his house and about three months later, I texted him. I said, Hey, I know this is really sensitive, but would you mind if I ran the picture in the book? Cause it'll really illustrate to the readers exactly, you know, how bad it got for you there. And he said, let me talk about it with my wife and I'll get back to you. And like a half hour later, he texted me the picture and I will say it's not the same picture he showed me in his house when he was in the hospital. But just imagine it with a picture that he showed me was even worse than the one that's in the book. And the one that's in the book is pretty bad. Um, so he, he was very open and honest with me um, as we sat there for like over two hours. In fact, his wife, Susan came into the, to the living room if she had gone out and, you know, was doing stuff outside the house and she came back and we were still talking and she walked into the room and she goes, you know, he must really like you because he never talks to anybody for two hours. (laughs) And I I thought he's a great guy who has never found anything after football that he, and this is basically his quote. He never found anything after football that he felt he was any good at. He, he spent a summer in jet training camp as an intern, uh, coaching when Parcells was there. It was either 97 or 98. I think it was 97, Bill's first year with the Jets, and he just didn't like it. He, he didn't like the you know hearing the coaches bicker in the meeting rooms, which was a surprise to me. He didn't like how players got cut, how insensitive it was, and how they let players practice knowing at the end of the day they were going to cut them. Um, he just didn't like any part of – of that part of the job. I think he liked working with the players, but just didn't like the rest of it. And, you know, he, he does some stuff. Um, he's involved in a project with Lawrence Taylor and uh, Otis Anderson that uh, is keeping him a little, little bit busy. Phil McConkie is got, you know, Phil's been, is one of the success stories. Um, and Phil has gotten him involved, Phil's into the financial sector and, um, has gotten Mark involved in a couple of businesses that uh, I know that Mark appreciates. So, um, yeah, I think that people will be surprised who who paid attention to the Bavaro of the giant years and and how protective he was of any of his thoughts. And then they're going to read this chapter that I wrote about Mark. And I mean, it's just I'm not going to give away this story. But just one of the funniest training camp stories, his rookie year, that in the more more than 40 years I've been covering the NFL, this was probably the funniest training camp story I've ever heard. Don't don't, don't tell it. Don't tell it. No, I'm not telling it. it. (laughs) Listen, my my aim here in, in coming on with you, other than I like talking to you, is that I want people to buy the book. And obviously, the story about marketing training camp is rookie training camp is going to have you falling on the floor laughing. All right. Hey, Gary, before, uh, before I let you go, I want to turn to a couple of other topics real quick. Um, You're not, you know, you're not in the day-to-day grind of it anymore, but you know, you have a giants team nowadays, this current giants team that is sort of finally coming out of, I guess what, what some people would call the second coming of the, of the wilderness years for the Giants. 
And just, you know, from, from where you sit sort of from afar, can you draw any parallels to, to, to this, you know, from this Giants team to any of the other Giants teams that, that maybe eventually won Super Bowls? Is it too early to do any of that? Just in terms of how any of those teams developed, you know, over the years? Because it doesn't happen overnight. No, well, certainly cannot compare them to 86 or 90 because those were the pre-free agency years. And, I mean, the 86 team built to that moment in 84 and 85 in, you know, disappointing playoff losses, which I think all teams in that era went through before they would win a championship. But you kept those teams intact so you can kind of get a sense before the season, okay, this is going to be the year they turn the corner. It's much different now because there's, what, 30% turnover in the roster on a year-to-year basis. So it's very hard to predict um, how a team is going to do other than teams that have a young quarterback on his rookie contract and a good core or foundation around them. And, you know, I look at teams like Buffalo, which before Josh Allen got a second contract – was able to really build the team up around him. And they hit it big because he was great early on in his career. Justin Herbert is the same way. Um, Joe Burrow. Now you're looking at the Giants. You know, where where are they compared? So we're going to throw out 86 and 90. Where are they compared to, say, the 07 and the 11 teams? Well, I don't think in either case we went into that season thinking that Giant team was going to win the Super Bowl. In fact, the 07 team was – kind of falling apart around Thanksgiving that year in a, in a horrendous game for Eli against Minnesota, if you remember. He threw a, a bunch of interceptions, like two or three were returned for touchdowns. And I remember writing a column after that game, you know, is this was Eli's fourth year. Is he the long-term answer? Are they going to have to move on from Eli uh, and Coughlin? And, and then they got on this amazing run in the playoffs. So it, it's so hard to predict how – a team is going to be on a year-to-year basis. But, you know, as we're sitting here now, so I, I don't really say, well, I have the same feeling about this team that I had about 07 or 11 or even to 2000 team that wound up losing the Super Bowl. All I can say is I, I like where they're at at this point in the restructuring, rebuilding, trying to win on the fly as you're turning over the roster last year was really surprised, which has built up expectations. And I know that such a common phrase now in trying to predict how this team is going to do is, you know, Ed, this team could be better this year, but not have a record as good as last year. And and that's probably true, but you know, nobody knows that. Um, yeah, the schedule is tougher, but do we know that a, a team that you're looking at, that the Giants are playing in November, is going to, there's no way they're winning that game. Well, maybe the quarterback isn't there by November, that he gets hurt. That's why when people go week to week, well, this is a win, this is a win, this is a loss, forget all that stuff because injuries change so much and uh, can change the team's complexion so much. What I'll say about this Giants team is they're probably at least a year ahead of schedule that what people anticipated when Dable and, and Shane came in uh, they overachieved last year to a certain extent. They won a lot of close games. The schedule is tougher this year, but the team is better. So uh, maybe those games that you're saying, well, these are really tough games. Maybe those teams are looking at the Giants and saying, 
you know, that's a lot tougher game than we would have thought it would have been. So, you know, clearly you think that Philadelphia is better. I think the, the Giants are on the same level as the Cowboys. I do think the Cowboys are overrated. I think the Giants are a little bit underrated. Uh, I don't know what the over-under is on their victories, but it's not as high as I thought it would be. Maybe you know the answer to that. Maybe seven and a half, I, eight. I think it's about seven and a half, and I think that's that's tough. That's yeah. that's probably low. Yeah, I, I think they've um, they've done a good job building up the defense. I, I I think they've done an excellent job over the last two years of giving Daniel Jones um, more weapons. You know, uh, Waller is an excellent player. If if Jalen Hyatt can turn that incredible speed that he has into production. It gives them something they haven't had, a, you know, a long ball threat they haven't had really since OBJ. Um, I think the biggest concern, and this is not news breaking, but is the offensive line. Um, they need uh, Evan Neal to, um, to make the same steps from year one to year two that Andrew Thomas did. And um, they need the rookie center to really not play like a rookie and they need better guard play and they need Saquon to stay healthy and happy. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he said all the right things since the disappointment of not getting the long-term contract. I think there were mistakes made on both sides. Um, and now there's pressure on Daniel Jones. I mean, Ed, a year ago at this time, there were people writing, you know, wondering if he got off to a slow start, whether Tyred Taylor was going to be the quarterback and now, after throwing 15 touchdown passes in a season, he's a $40 million a year quarterback. I mean, what had that happen? Now he's got to live up to it. Giants made a huge financial investment. And no more excuses because they've given him weapons. And um, he's got to play. He played last year was his best year, but he's got to play better this year. Or they are going to take a step backwards. So much with every team just depends on, one, keeping the quarterback healthy. And two, the quarterback playing great. And I've seen enough from from Jones over the last few years and bits and pieces that he could be a great thrower of the football and he's really dangerous running the ball. So they got to make sure he stays healthy and then takes the next step in his progression. And um, I I think he can do it. Um, but we'll start finding out on the night of September 10th. <laughs> Yes, we will. All right, Gary, I have really, really appreciated uh, your spending some time with me. Why don't you tell folks again exactly when the book comes out, where you're going to be to promote the book, uh, how they could pre-order it if they can do that, uh, all, all that good stuff. Yeah, and thanks for uh, allowing me to do that. Uh, Amazon, for sure, Barnes & Noble, all these websites that people order books from, you can pre-order it, and it, you know it's coming out relatively soon now, September 12th. Um, So you can pre-order it or go into a bookstore starting September 12th, and it will be there. A couple of events I'm really excited about, you know, telling your listeners and viewers, September 14th at Bookends in Ridgewood, New Jersey, which is a very popular independent bookstore and has a lot of great authors come through there and is really well known. I'm going to be there at 6 o'clock. It's a Thursday night with Phil Sims. And, and Phil's going to be signing books with me. Um, great opportunity to, to meet the first Super Bowl MVP who had the Disney commercial. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Phil's pretty proud of that. 
Um, yeah, so we'll be there for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, starting six o'clock. And so you can go to the, the, the website, the bookends website, and pre-order the book, and it'll be waiting for you on September 14th. If you still want Phil to sign it and me to sign it, but can't make it to the event, you can still order it on the bookends website, and they'll send it to you with, with the autographs in there. So I know they've had an amazing uh, response to uh, the marketing that they've done for that um, and have sold a lot of books and have sold a lot of books for people who say, unfortunately, they can't be there, but they want the book. And so they've taken pre-orders for, you know, well over a hundred books, just to people who can't even be there. And then a lot for people who will be there. Then September 21st, so that's six o'clock on September 14th. And then September 21st, I came up with a pretty cool idea. I'm going to be at Miller's Sports Hub. It's between 88th and 89th on on 2nd Avenue at 7 o'clock with Leonard Marshall and Harry Carson. And this is the night the Giants are playing the 49ers in San Francisco. People love going to sports bars and hanging out with fans that are rooting for their team. And there'll be a ton of Giant fans at Miller's that night. So Harry and Leonard and I are going to be there about an hour and 15, an hour and a half before kickoff, you know, signing copies of the book. And then we're going to hang out, have dinner, have a couple of drinks and watch the game with all the people that are there. And then nice. on October, October 22nd, this is my last one I'll tell you about. The Giants have been so nice. Um, before the Washington game, I'm going to be in the plaza near the team store signing books with um, Jim Burt and Leonard Marshall again, and um, maybe one or two other players who uh, are trying to work things out to be there as well. So we'll be there, you know, probably starting at 11 o'clock. It's a one o'clock kickoff. And I'm really looking forward to, to hanging out with giant fans uh, on that day as well. Gary, great stuff. Thanks again for coming on. I'm looking forward to uh, to getting a chance to read the book myself. And uh, Giants fans, I think you'll you'll learn a lot about players that uh, that that you've never thought about uh, really, other than uh, other than seeing them on the field. So uh, get yourself a copy of the book. And uh, Gary, thanks again for the time. Giants fans, thank you as always for listening. Please stay safe out there. Take care of each other, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.